Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this part two of the highlights from this year's University of Toronto Update and EM Conference from Whistler, BC, we have Dr. David Carr of Carr's Cases fame. We'll talk about five things you need to know about the use and misuse of antibiotics. Then we'll have Dr. Chris Hicks, you might remember from episode 11 on cognitive decision-making and medical error, as well as episode 62 on diagnostic decision-making, talking about post-arrest cath lab activation and chest pain rule-out algorithms. Now, before we get into that, just a couple of announcements. First, Northwark General Hospital's Emergency Medicine Update Conference is just a couple of weeks away, and there's still time to register. It'll have Weingart, Matu, Himmel... Swadron, Hicks, Carr, and many more EM cases guest experts, as well as a wide variety of hands-on procedural workshops, which are awesome. Not only that, but I'm super psyched to announce that after a year of hard work from the EM cases team, we're releasing the first of our series of interactive eBooks entitled EM Cases Digest on May 7th, on the first day of the EM Update Conference, for free. So my team's been working really hard. Taryn Lloyd, Michelle Yee, Niran Argentaru, Michelle Killian, Michael Meesh, Claire Heslop, and Kirat Graywall to make this book for free for you. This one covers all the podcasts related to trauma and MSK. So if you're at the conference, please come by the EM Cases table and we can help you download a free copy. I want to thank not only the team, but also Michelle Lynn from Academic Life and Emergency Medicine for writing the foreword for the series and SREMI for their support that allowed us to hire a professional digital designer so that the books would have an awesome user experience for you. So that's the announcements I just wanted to make. Let's move on to highlights from the Whistler Conference. Here's Dr. David Carr's top five antibiotic pearls and pitfalls. So we're going to talk a little bit about antibiotics today, and we give these a lot. If you're a pharmacy guy like Joel is, where uh, pharmacy companies are knocking on his door to give him money and stuff, then uh, they're going to want you for this, because we are the number one or two prescribers of both penicillins and cephalosporins. This is what we do. And about 140,000 adverse effects in the States are secondary to this. And uh, the only good news is there's not a lot of new drugs coming up the pipeline. They kind of, you really just have to know your local resistance patterns because there's not a lot, a lot of new stuff out there. So I kind of was asked to give five things. So I had to think about what are five things that we need to do differently, okay? And my first thing is we're all kind of familiar with this antibiotic stewardship stuff, which is do no harm. So I feel that we give antibiotics for the wrong reasons. Uh, The first reason is this patient entitlement that as ER wait times go up, they're more entitled. So the person who comes in with a cold and says, Doc, I've been here for five hours and you're not even going to give me anything? There is no correlation. I couldn't care less about our wait times. You don't get antibiotics because of that. We're getting good with the tightest media, right? We kind of, this Dutch literature came out and we kind of said, okay, we're not going to give it for entitis unless you're over two, and unless you've had greater than 48 hours of symptoms, and we've been good at that, right? What about sinusitis? We're not so good there, right? If you find yourself writing scripts for sinusitis, think about selling your soul to the devil, 
Okay, sinusitis scripts are for, if you're an ENT resident or surgeon and you've just put a transphenoidal resection, I get it that that person who gets infected needs an antibiotic. But this is a viral condition a majority of time and we need to edge our, our patients to be patients. It takes time. I've been sick for a week, I get it. It's gonna take more than a week. You know what works really well? Saline lavage, maybe a script for Flonase and some, a tincture of time. That's what you got to do with sinusitis. It is not an antibiotic stuff. It's over-the-counter meds. So just a little bit on sinusitis here. First, you have to decide which patients are bacterial sinusitis and which patients are viral. Now, that's not so easy to tell, but if you look at the IDSA guidelines from 2012, the first question they ask in them is, which clinical presentations best identify patients with acute bacterial versus viral rhinosinusitis? And these are their recommendations. I'm going to take it right out of IDSA guidelines. And they suggest that any one of the three following presentations are recommended for identifying patients with acute bacterial versus viral rhinosinusitis. And I'll read them right from the IDSA guidelines. Number one, onset with persistent symptoms or signs compatible with acute rhinosinusitis lasting for 10 or more days without any evidence of clinical improvement. Number two, onset with severe symptoms or signs of high fever that's at least 39 degrees Celsius, and purulent nasal discharge or facial pain lasting for at least three to four consecutive days at the beginning of illness. And lastly, onset with worsening symptoms or signs characterized by the new onset of fever, headache, or increase in nasal discharge following a typical URI that lasted five or six days and were initially improving, the so-called double sickening. Now, these guidelines are a little bit wishy-washy, but that's just to give you a flavor. Now, what about the evidence for giving antibiotics? It turns out that from a meta-analysis done from a whole slew of randomized controlled trials, that the number needed to treat to shorten the duration of illness is about 13. So really, I think the approach to sinusitis should start with the premise of no antibiotics. And then if you're really convinced the patient has a high fever, they have thick green nasal discharge with lots of tenderness around the sinuses and they really look sick and it's been for a long duration without any improvement, then I would consider giving antibiotics. For the rest of the patients, they much more likely have a viral illness where antibiotics won't be of much help. What about man colds? Why do we keep treating them? Okay, Bronchitis is a condition in people with COPD those people need antibiotics. The people who have a normal chest x-ray, you know, they'll always punt it back to and say, well, doc, what if it's bronchitis? You know, I always get antibiotics for my bronchitis. And you say, it probably is bronchitis. Your x-ray's normal. You don't need an antibiotic. You're not an 80-year-old on home oxygen with COPD. You're a 35-year-old guy who's got to go back to work. What about strep? So the first thing that came with strep throat is this flip a coin. So, you know, we were grilled in our residencies and training about this McIsaac criteria, center criteria, which basically gave four or five criteria that said, you know, if you have a score of three, you should treat them on spec. They're going to have strep. And when you read this stuff, you realize that if you get every single point, you got a 50% chance of having strep. That's crazy. I've totally been oversold. I was told you have to give scripts and treat. And now, you know, what they look at is when they look at people treated for pharyngitis, only 10% are actually strep. So the issue is, 
What's the deal with strep anyways? So Rosen's came out with their chapter, and this is their statement that says, acute pharyngitis should not be typically treated with antibiotics. The great majority of cases are viral in origin, and superlative complications following strep are both easily treated and too rare to justify routine use. In particular, antibiotics were beneficial in reducing rheumatic fever only during a single military epidemic in the mid-20th century, and the decline in rheumatic fever is unrelated to trends in antibiotic use. This is not a concern. There has not been post-streptococcal rheumatic fever. We're not seeing it. If you look at number needed to treat data, we always thought about strep to prevent rheumatic fever. Remember, it doesn't prevent post-streptococcal GN. It was to do rheumatic fever. There are no cases. If you look at number needed to treat, you'll read anywhere from 40,000 to a million. The CDC has stopped tracking rheumatic fever. Take it off your radar, okay? The number needed to harm, One in 5,000 people who get penicillin will have anaphylaxis. One in 10 will have cold browns. We do not see rheumatogenic strains of strep anymore. You really need to rethink treating and swabbing all people for strep. This, I think, is a paradigm shift. I'm not saying in your sick, immunocompromised, febrile, toxic people to ignore it. But it's not the superlative complication. It's not like you go from strep to uh, parapharyngeal abscess like that. Those happen separately. I just want to clarify here that Dr. Carr is talking about adult patients only. You see, in kids, there have been cases in Canada reported of rheumatic fever. It's unsure whether giving antibiotics will still prevent it. But because there are several cases of rheumatic fever in kids, we have to be a little bit more cautious. Think about who you're treating for strep. This evidence has not been brought to kids, which is a lot of where you're seeing strep, right? In that three to 18 group. So it's hard to apply it for that. I'm an adult eMERGE doc, I don't see a lot of children. So for my practice, it doesn't intervene. But if I was a pediatrician or a community eMERGE who did a lot of peds, I think you don't have the meat to change your practice entirely. Next, Dr. Carr is gonna talk about when we really need IV antibiotics and when PO antibiotics will suffice. Does it have to be IV? So there's this issue and this real pressure of not putting people on IV antibiotics. And it stems from a principle called bioavailability. So bioavailability is the percentage of the drug that is absorbed orally. And knowledge of these facts allow you to use outpatient oral antibiotics to push the envelope. I work in a major cancer center where they've even started to think about PO antibiotics that are very highly bioavailable for febrile neutropenics in a subset of the population. This is for people who are the sickest immunocompromised people around. So they're pushing the the envelope because ED length of stays and costs are important things of how we practice. You need to know a little bit about bioavailability. So the low one is the one we always talk about, which is nitrofurantoin or macrobid, where we know that if you have someone who needs concentration in tissue or blood, you're not getting it. If you want them in their pee, it's perfect. Keflex, it has a very good bioavailability, which means that the concentration in your blood and tissues is better than the dose you need to get over the bug. Why is this important? Because this business of switching people from Keflex to Ansef is overrated. You know, people are on Keflex and then they're not getting better, so we're like, oh yeah, here's a gram of ANSEF. You are not doing a major escalation in their care. Maybe making them take it more seriously to stay at home. 
keep their leg up for their cellulitis is helping out, you're not getting the major jump. And the one list that you need to memorize, you need to keep on your handheld, are the drugs that you don't need to give IV. Provided you're not puking, provided you're not in septic shock, but quinolones, septra, clinda, flagyl, linazolid, doxy, these are all drugs that are great if given orally as opposed to IV, which means that you can send a sick person home with PO Clinda, with PO Avalox, which means you're not getting much better for admitting them to your hospital. So just to review there, the oral antibiotics that have really good bioavailability, you should consider instead of IV antibiotics in patients who aren't really, really sick. And the list is the following. Quinolones, like ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin, Septra, which is trimethoprim and sulfamethoxazole, which is Bactrim in the U.S., clindamycin, flagyl or metronidazole, and finally doxycycline. So again, the list is quinolones, septra, clindamycin, flagyl, linazolid, and doxycycline. So this needs to change the way you're practicing if you're not, in terms of it can give you that gun to send people home with close follow-up with maybe some oral antibiotics. What about Vanco? I remember a time where we were afraid of Vanco, where that was really only used for smart people, right? Not by us. And Vanco was a big drug and we weren't allowed to use it, but now we use it a lot, right? For sick people, because of MRSA. And how do we even dose it? And this is something that we're not doing a great job at, which is what is the correct dose of Vanco? To me, it was a gram or two grams. There was nothing in between, and you said a gram if they weren't sick, and two grams if you had meningitis. So this is kind of something that's gaining momentum. Stop the one gram Vanco orders. These are not routine doses. These need to be weight-based calculated drugs, and they have to be calculated not on your ideal body weight, by that, by that terrible number that it says on the scale when you've had a big night out, and it tells you what you actually weigh, okay? And if you're not sick, it's a 20 per kilo per dose, and if you're sick, it's 30 per kilo dose. If the dose is high, some ID people will say, I don't care what the dose is, give them three grams. Or dose it differently, so you might go Q8. But there's no doubt that we need to rethink the impulse to just write Vanco one gram. How much do you weigh? Yes, if you weigh 70 kilos, a 20 per kilo dose is going to be 1.4, which you're going to round up to 1.5. If you're really sick, it's 30 per kilo. You're looking at two grams at least. Okay, so stop using one gram vanco orders. So the dosing of vancomycin is 20 milligrams per kilogram for the not so sick and 30 milligrams per kilogram for the sick. Now, Dr. Carr was talking about the 70-kilogram person, which for some reason in the medical textbooks is the average weight of a person. Now, I don't know about you, but in my department, the average weight of a person is far greater than 70 kilograms. It's more like 100 kilograms. So for a 100-kilogram person, not so sick is 20 milligrams per kilogram. We're talking 2 grams of vancomycin. And for the really sick patient, we're talking 30 milligrams per kilogram. So that's 3 grams of vancomycin. In other words... We've been underdosing vancomycin all along. Next, Dr. Carr is going to talk about the changing landscape of antibiotics for gonorrhea.
if penicillin was a great gift for Valentine's Day if you had gonorrhea a long time ago, it's no longer a great gift. It doesn't really work. So what's changed in gonorrhea? Gonorrhea has been all over the news. And what we know is that cefixime is out. Okay, that's fine, we still have ceftriaxone, that's great. But now the current thoughts, and this is 2014 Toronto Public Health, is that if you are treating isolated gonorrhea, you should give them a dose of azithromycin on top, irregardless of whether they have chlamydia or not. You're not giving them to co-treat chlamydia, you're giving them to raise their potential to cover gonorrhea. This is a big change. Ceftriaxone isn't enough. It's ceph and azithro. And if you have PID, it's ceph plus doxy. In BC, since we're here and we're having a good time out here, they are considering the option of azithro in two gram Q weekly doses for two. But the current grublings in public health are as you have PID, you should take ceph, you should take azithro, and you should take doxy. That's kind of not in the guidelines, but that's moving up the creek. And it's moving up the creek because we're seeing ceftriaxone-resistant gonorrhea. So for uncomplicated gonorrhea, we want to give ceftriaxone plus azithromycin. And for patients who you're worried about PID, then you may want to consider giving ceftriaxone plus azithromycin plus doxycycline. You need to take into account your local resistance patterns, of course. So what I would recommend is checking the website of your local public health for guidelines. And there's some light at the end of the tunnel, which is as follows. A study that just came out this fall, which looked at, hey, man, having sex is becoming more dangerous. Is there something else we can do if ceftriaxone fails? And they looked at a high-risk group with a high percentage of men who have sex with men, and they looked at saying, instead of a gram-negative agent like ceftriaxone, why don't you consider gemiflox or genta? And what they found in that group of the gemi or genta plus azithro is they had really great microbiological cure with these drugs. So it's something to think about, especially in the men who have sex with men group who have higher ceftriaxone resistance, is, you know what, single-dose genta plus azithro is maybe going to be the new way of treating gonorrhea in the future. And we'll have to keep our eyes about that. So based on recent ceftriaxone resistance patterns, at least in Canada, one consideration is to give gentamicin plus azithro instead of ceftriaxone plus azithro. So last thing, five pearls. I thought I'd give you one more. Guy comes into your eMERGE with an upper GI bleed, kind of looks like this, a lot of Molson muscle, a lot of cirrhosis. What can you do to change his mortality? You know, you'll need a lot of IVs for this one, right? You can give PPIs, IV, 80, 8 per hour, octreotide, get another line for that 80, 50 bolus, 50 drip, get him some vitamin K, get him some FFP, right? Maybe some other stuff, magnesium, I don't know, or antibiotics. What's the one thing that makes a difference? antibiotics. If you're not doing this, if you're giving all that other fancy stuff in ABCD, remember the thing that changes his life in an upper GI bleed with cirrhosis is antibiotics. And without boring you with fancy curves and stuff, when you look at mortality, it favors the drugs. When you look at risk of bacterial infection, this is a high yield intervention. Prophylactic antibiotics for cirrhotics with upper GI bleed reduces mortality. 
it prevents infections. You can hum and haw whether you think the best method of giving PPIs is PO or IV or what you should do, but at the end of the day, the one thing that makes a difference is to give them a gram of ceftriaxone. So, what are my conclusions? Stop treating viruses, man colds, sinusitis, think about a new approach to pharyngitis, think about it. You don't always need them IV. This ANCEF Keflex thing is really an overstatement. Know how to dose them. Please, if you write one gram Vanco, you better make sure that you know what that person weighs. It's their actual body weight, so it's easy to calculate. If you're gonna have sex, don't get gonorrhea. And if you're gonna get gonorrhea, know that maybe there's another option, which is using gram-negative coverage through the aids of things like Gemiflox or Genta, because I think ceftriaxone resistance is real. And the antibiotics, you know, when you punt this person to your hospice, to your medicine, I have an upper GI bleed, cirrhotic. I give them some ceftriaxone and then I kind of, whatever you ate for breakfast, maybe you give them some other stuff based on that. So let's review again here. We overuse antibiotics. For pharyngitis in adults, consider a non-antibiotic approach in immunocompetent patients in North America because adult rheumatic fever pretty much doesn't exist anymore. And here, the number needed to treat for peritonsillar abscess is about 400. In kids, there's still some reports of rheumatic fever, and theoretically at least, giving antibiotics may prevent those rare cases. For sinusitis, again, unless the patient is immunocompromised or has a long course of illness with high fever or signs of sepsis, antibiotics are generally not indicated. Next, the oral antibiotics that have good bioavailability and generally speaking will work as well as IV formulations are the following. Quinolones, Septra or Bactrim, Clinda, Metronidazole, Linazolid, Doxy, and Cephalexin. Next, remember that vancomycin should be dosed according to the patient's body weight. That's 30 milligrams per kilogram for the sick, sick patients and 20 milligrams per kilogram for the not-so-sick patients, which for most of our adult patients is generally in the range of one and a half grams to about three grams. Now, what about the best antibiotics for gonorrhea presently? For uncomplicated GC, the current recommendations say ceftriaxone plus azithromycin, and then for PID or complicated GC, add doxycycline. And the newest study shows that in high-risk groups, we may want to consider single-dose gentamicin plus azithro or gemifloxacin plus azithro. And lastly, for cirrhotic patients with GI bleeds, the best evidence for improving outcomes, including mortality, is ceftriaxone. So after you've given all that other stuff that you usually give for cirrhotic patients with GI bleeds, think about giving antibiotics. Next, we're going to hear from Dr. Chris Hicks, about cardiology pearls. Dr. Hicks is going to start off with a discussion on who goes for PCI post-cardiac arrest, and he'll start with a case. So, 67-year-old male, heavy cardiac history in the past, has a little chest pain at home, feels a little nauseated, collapses. EMS shows up, he's got the squiggly line of death. Uh, they shock that, they resuscitate him, they bring him to your hospital with a return of spontaneous circulation. So he's still critically ill, but he's alive, he has a pulse. And you do a post-arrest ECG. 
There's some ST depression in the lateral leads. So, fact or false, you've got this post-arrest patient, you're trying to stabilize them. You work in a non-PCI-capable hospital, so this patient should be stabilized and then transferred as quickly as possible to a PCI-capable center uh, for emergent reperfusion therapy. Remember, think of the practical stuff here. You're not at a PCI-capable hospital. You have to ship this patient out. You have to make transfer arrangements. He's still got a sick patient. I want to talk about a study uh, that really influenced, this is from 2010, but it really influenced the 2013 guidelines on this topic. And this is PROCAT, the Parisian Region Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Registry. And this study, in part, helps us answer the question, what do we do with these patients that kind of have a non-diagnostic post-arrest ECG? Because if that ECG I showed you showed a STEMI, I think everyone would pretty be, pretty be, be pretty much on board with what to do next, right? Um, so in this study, uh, this is a registry study, so they, they did look back at patients and outcomes, uh, but they were interested in knowing the influence or the impact of immediate um, angiography and possible PCI in post-arrest patients. So it was about 714 other hospital cardiac arrests. They excluded patients that had a non-obvious cardiac cause, an obvious non-cardiac cause. So if you got decapitated, you didn't get in this study. So about 400 or so, 430 underwent immediate uh, post-arrest uh, coronary angiography plus minus PCI. So what did they find? Well, not terribly surprising. If your ECG showed ST elevation, that was pretty specific for a significant coronary lesion, but it actually lacked sensitivity. Meaning there were a bunch of patients out there that ended up having something significant that needed a cath in the post-arrest stage that didn't have the telltale signs on their ECG. So the kind of main insight from this study was, well, no big surprise. If you had a C elevation in your post-arrest ECG, 96% of the time you had something that the interventionalist thought should be stented then and there as a culprit lesion. But fully almost 60% of the time in the non-diagnostic ECGs, there was also something there that the interventionalist, in their subjective wisdom, decided needed a stent. Successful PCI in these patients post-arrest was independently associated with survival over top of non-successful PCI or no PCI at all. So not only did they find something that they thought needed stenting, if they stented it successfully in the post-arrest phase, you did better. And this was both for ST-segment eleva elevation MI and also for non-ST-segment elevation MI ECG. So both categories of patients did better if they got a cath afterwards. More recently, there was a meta-analysis of this topic in 2014. They looked at a bunch of different papers and the effect of early angiography. And again, there was a mortality benefit to doing early PCI, early cath. And they made the statement in this paper that early coronary angiography in patients following at a hospital cardiac arrest is independently associated with survival. So what does the HA say? So this is the 2013 recommendation. Immediate angiography in PCI, when indicated, should be performed uh, in resuscitated out-of-hospital arrest patients when the initial ECG shows STEMI. So that's not exactly earth-shattering. But they also make the statement that despite the absence of ST-segment elevation MI, it is reasonable to consider immediate cath in patients that have a non-obvious cause or you're considering an ischemic cause as the most likely cause of a arrest on clinical grounds. And that's a class one recommendation. So we're not interventionalists, but we're advocates, right? So for most of us, for those that work at a PCI hospital, and in particular for those of us who don't, we're going to be on the phone advocating for what needs to happen next. And have any, I don't know if any of you had this argument. I certainly have. I worked at a PCI-capable hospital, and I picked up the phone and had arguments with the interventionalist about whether or not this patient should get a cath now or not. So this is a body of knowledge that I think we need to know about, not because we're going to go do a cath, but we're going to advocate for immediate transfer, early transfer, early intervention, because the evidence suggests it's probably what's best. So to sum that up then, immediate PCI offers a survival benefit to selected patients who are survivals of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, regardless 
of what their ECG shows, assuming that this is a presumed cardiac cause for their arrest. So the bottom line here is pretty straightforward. For patients who you think had a cardiac arrest due to a myocardial infarction, it doesn't matter if that myocardial infarction is a STEMI or a non-STEMI, even if they have just some slight ST deviation in either direction on their ECG, those patients should all probably get PCI and you need to advocate for your patients. You might end up getting some pushback from the interventional cardiologists, but the guidelines, the meta-analyses, and all the recent evidence suggests that this is what we should be doing. If you want to do Next, we're going to talk about that oh-so-common situation, the low-risk chest pain patient with negative tropes, and you're not sure whether they should stay in the hospital for more testing or whether they're safe to go home. Now, there's been a whole bunch of clinical decision tools for low-risk chest pain, and Dr. Hicks is going to talk specifically about the modified heart score. This is something that they're doing at some centers and may soon become widespread to help us discharge those patients safely with negative troponins and low-risk chest pain. This is a 38-year-old man, maybe the guy who had the man flu that, that Dave was talking about before, pretty healthy, no cardiac risk factors, maybe had some chest pain for 20 minutes, maybe it was exertional, maybe it kind of radiated to his jaw, and now it's gone. And they show up in your emergency department with this ECG. Pretty normal, right? I know for me, if I've got a normal or non-diagnostic ECG, I, want to, I, I kind of want to grab an old one if they have one. So you do that on this guy and... It's the same, unchanged from previous. He's been there 14 times for chest pain before, and you're not terribly worried. All right, so you decide, just because you're a bit of a suck like me, that you're going to work this patient up for an acute coronary syndrome. Because, by the way, it's totally appropriate that you just ignore this and you don't do anything. But let's say, for the sake of argument, you're going to do cardiac enzymes on this patient. How would you go about using cardiac biomarkers in terms of ruling out the presence, and I use that phrase somewhat loosely, but ruling out the presence of a new or concerning acute coronary syndrome? So there's, this, is, this is an area that's kind of rapidly changing in the, in the past couple of years. So the EHA recommendation is still, you should do at least two, two troponins and probably somewhere between six and eight hours from the time of presentation. But the guidelines do talk about using these rapid rule-out uh, protocols to accelerate disposition in low-risk chest pain patients. And part of the issue, the way we've kind of always been taught to do it, I've always been taught you ask about timing of symptom onset and you must measure troponins six or eight hours later depending on your assay. But the, but the truth about that is that patient reporting of symptom onset timing is, is notoriously unreliable. And many of our cardiologists at our shop don't even use that. They don't buy it because they don't think it's accurate enough. So the point that was made in the back was, well, maybe you can just kind of throw out timing of symptom onset altogether and just use cardiac enzymes that are a couple hours apart and look at the difference. That's one strategy. I want to suggest another one here. Has anyone seen the heart score? Well, I know Anton has podcasting on it, but anyone using this in practice? So I like the heart score in part because it's been derived, prospectively validated, and independently prospectively validated in a couple different studies as a scoring system to assess patients who are low risk for major adverse cardiac events, or MACE, in the emergency department setting, uh, which I think is important. So this is a five-point score, and it relates to history, ECG, age, risk factors, and troponin. I won't sort of read it off. One of the things that I like about this score is that history bit allows you to factor in your level of clinical suspicion. And a lot of other scoring systems don't have that. So you can still put your gestalt 
into whether or not you think this patient is, is high or low risk. And in this particular uh, validation study, it was about 2,400 or so patients in the Netherlands across 10 centers, and they followed them out to 30 days looking for major cardiac, adverse cardiac events like, like recurrent STEMI, PCI, cabbage, death, and so on. And what they found um, was that if you had a score of 0 to 3, 3 or less, your rate of adverse cardiac events was 2.5 or less. And everything else was a little bit higher than that. So their suggestion was that these patients are at overall low risk for major cardiac events, and they could be worked up as an outpatient. We'll have the heart score on the blog post and written summary, as well as the Agile MD app. But just to give you an idea of what comprises the score, first, you need to decide whether the history is highly suspicious, moderately suspicious, or slightly suspicious for ACS. Then, in the ECG section, is there significant ST depression, or is there a nonspecific repolarization disturbance, or is the ECG normal? Next, is the patient over the age of 65 or between 45 and 65, or are they less than 45? Do they have three or more of the classic cardiac risk factors, one or two of the risk factors, or no risk factors at all? And finally, is the troponin three or more times the normal limit, or one to three times the normal limit, or below the normal cutoff? I think it's important to know that the heart score has been compared to the Timmy and Grace scores, But these older scores measure risk of death for patients with acute coronary syndromes and don't do as well as the heart score in telling us who has an ACS in the first place. Next, Dr. Hicks is going to talk about some of the controversies with the heart score and then introduce the modified heart score, which is where the real money is. A couple of things I want to point out about this score, though. So I think there is a lot to like about it. There's a couple of things that are worth knowing. First of all, you can have an ECG with significant ST depression or a positive troponin and still have a score less than three. And that's a little weird, and I'm not sure everyone would necessarily be comfortable discharging a patient like that, so there's been a lot of discussion about whether we need to be a little bit worried about what a score of three or less actually means, depending on what that score is comprised of. But that's a judgment call. And then the other thing I think that's important to know, in this study, the hospitals involved used traditional cardiac troponins, not the high-sensitivity troponins that are coming out now. So... One of the things that is nice about this decision rule uh, that's different from some of the other ones like ADAPT is this study used traditional troponins, and they used one. So if you had one troponin, this is not serial enzymes, this is one set of cardiac enzymes, uh, negative whenever, at the time of presentation typically, that's enough to send the patient home, assuming the rest of their score is negative. And that also makes people feel a little bit weird and a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, And the adverse event rate is still 2.5, which is still, you could argue, kind of concerningly high. So there is a modified heart score protocol out there that uses troponins at zero and three hours. And if you have negative troponin at zero and three hours plus a heart score under three, then your major cardiac event rate drops to 0.6%, which a lot of us are probably a bit more comfortable with. And I can tell you that ECG and cardiology gurus like Amal Matu down in Baltimore, basically that's what his hospital has adopted. If you show up to his hospital and you have a heart score of three or less and you have negative troponins at zero, three hours, you get discharged home for an outpatient workup. And that's in the ultra-conservative American litiginous environment. So something like that, something like a modified heart, might be something that maybe gives you the strength to say, well, you know, within three hours I can discharge these patients home and they have a pretty low rate of adverse cardiac events. I'm still waiting for the paper that leaves the scores out of it and says, well, you can just eyeball somebody with a gestalt, say you're kind of low risk, maybe do one or two sets of cardiac enzymes or none and then let them go home. I'm aware of a couple of papers that compare those two, gestalt versus scoring systems. 
And Gestalt's okay, but these scores tend to do just a little bit better, which probably gives them a little bit more oomph. The, something called the NICE guidelines, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence in the UK, they haven't published this yet, but they're suggesting that zero and three hour high sensitivity troponins in any population, regardless of your baseline risk, is enough to rule out stemming and you can go home. So that's not coming yet, but that allows you to forget about all this scoring stuff and say, well, maybe they're in ACS, maybe they're not. I'm going to do a troponin at time presentation, troponin three hours later. And if those are negative and you're using one of those high sensitivity assays, you do not have an STEMI and you can go home for an outpatient workup. Hasn't been published, but it's coming. And that's going to be a UK-wide recommendation. If you use the heart score, how many patients is this applicable to? It's around 38 or 40. So this is not a small chunk of your low-risk chest pain patients. You could take about 40% of your low-risk chest pain patients out of the usual protocol uh, and apply heart to them, and they'll be able to go home. So that's one approach. The heart score and serotropones may be a decent way to rule out major adverse cardiac events uh, and send people home a little bit sooner. So again, the modified heart score says that if you have two negative high-sensitivity troponins three hours apart, regardless of the time of symptom onset, and a heart score of three or less, your chance of a major adverse cardiac event or death in the next six weeks is only 0.6%. And most of us would agree that those patients are safe to send home with good outpatient follow-up. I would suggest that once we have some good pragmatic real practice data from multiple centers that validates the modified heart score, then it'll probably be ready for full prime time use. For now, it's something you might want to discuss with your ED and cardiology groups at your hospital to see if it's something that'll be adopted at your shop in practice. And here's Dr. Hicks's wrap up. So post-resuscitation care has changed. And if you have a patient post-arrest who's got a presumed cardiac cause for their arrest, they will benefit most likely from immediate transfer to a PCI-capable center. Ultimately, whether or not they get a cath is up to them, but we have to make the call and we have to make the advocacy on their behalf. And troponins have changed. So there's a few protocols out there. Hearts one, there's something called the ADAPT protocol, which we're looking at our hospital. Basically, they say that if you risk stratify somebody to be low risk, you can do either zero and two or zero and three hour from the time of ED arrival. You can ignore the whole notion of time of uh, initial symptom presentation and send those patients home with a fairly low risk of adverse events, about 0.6 if you're using serial enzymes and a negative heart score. So there you have it. Some practice-changing pearls and pitfalls on antibiotic use, who needs a cath post-arrest, and who's safe to go home with low-risk chest pain. If you haven't heard yet, there are two new EM Cases offerings. First is the free ebook EM Cases Digest Volume 1, MSK and Trauma, That's an interactive, pearl-packed adventure of a learning journey that you can use as an adjunct to the podcast. You can just flip through it on a Sunday morning, or you can use it as a workbook with cases, Q&As, links to other foam resources, and a lot more. It's available on the website in three formats, PDF, Mobi, and EPUB, so that you can read it on pretty much any device. Just go to the EM Cases website and download your free copy. We also recently released EM Case's first blog series written by Professor Howard Ovens, the chief of the emergency department at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, and basically the guy who, when the Ontario government has major decisions to make on emergency care in the province, they go to Howard. The blog's called Waiting to be Seen, where EM policy meets practice, and Howard lays out important administrative and policy issues that affect your daily practice in the ED. In the next month, we'll be also releasing possibly the biggest Game Changer podcast ever on EM Cases, 
on the ED use of iron as a replacement for red cell transfusions, and we'll be releasing the third Journal Jam podcast. We're happy to welcome Rory Spiegel, a.k.a. EM Nerd, an EBM guru who will be writing critical peer reviews on the website for future Journal Jams, as well as Justin Morgenstern, the brains behind the fantastic new blog First 10 EM, who will be joining the Journal Jam team as well as an interviewer of the researchers. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. Until next time, take it easy. (laughs) 